Thank you, Pastor Nathan. Thank you for the prayer. Thank you for being here, church. It is good to see you on this Sunday night. We haven't been uh, back in the book of Malachi for several weeks, uh, but I'm excited to get back into this study. We have this week and next to finish up this little book of prophecy right at the end of the Old Testament. As I've said, it's sort of this connecting book that connects the old with the new right before the 400 years of silence between the Testaments. We have this little book here where it's sort of God's last words to his people. And so it's something that we ought to take notice, not we ought to consider. What does God have to say with some of these last words before the silence and then before he comes himself? Uh, That's sort of the backdrop, that's sort of what the prophet is somewhat doing, sharing these last words. So far, as we've looked through the first two chapters, basically the prophet Malachi has really just uh, come with a word of warning, forceful word of warning, I should say, that has been aimed directly at the priests. He has the priesthood directly in view, and that continues very much here in chapter 3. In verse number three, you'll notice that he remarks how there's this coming day when this one who is called the refiner or the purifier of heaven will come and he will visit the earth with these things in his hands. Notice as he says, and he shall visit, excuse me, verse number three, and he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver and he shall purify, notice this, the sons of Levi. And purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. You'll note that as he is hinting here, this prophet is hinting at this man who is to come, this one who is to come as the refiner and purifier of silver. He's doing this ministry of purification, of refining precisely with the sons of Levi, also known as the priests. They were those As we've looked at and as we are duly noted to note here again, these were the group of people, the group of Israelites who were called and set apart and specifically charged with upholding the truths of Yahweh's word as they ministered in the house of the Lord. They were to conduct themselves with all manner of fear and reverence and faithfulness as they carried out God's words, as they carried out God's ordinances to help minister to this word to the people of God. And here, as the prophet is here hinting at, they are set to be judged for the ways in which they have fumbled this calling and the ways in which they have relinquished this charge and As the prophet here suggests, this judgment is going to be swift and severe. You'll notice verse 5. And I will come near to you to judgment, and I will be a swift witness. He's going to have a ready testimony. As one who is giving testimony, perhaps, in a court of law, this witness is, we could say, the star witness of the case. And it is God himself who is the star witness, who has come to bear this testimony against his own people for the ways in which they have let this calling, let the truth and the preciousness and the blessings of God's word sort of fall between the cracks of their fingers. He is ready to testify to this, to the faults and failures of the household of faith. And I think for me, that's one of the most sobering points about this little book is that this is a prophecy Directly aimed at God's house. 
It's almost as if the prophet has come and grabbed the people of God by the face almost to get their attention, to get them to listen. It's a prophecy of judgment. It's a prophecy of judgment that we've noted that has been tinged with hope. And that hope is going to be fully explored, perhaps even in greater detail in the last chapter. But it is a prophecy of judgment nonetheless. With the better portion of these chapters spent really detailing why it's been necessary. We've, he's sort of over and over again repeated how they have failed, how they have messed up, how they have fallen away from where they were supposed to be and from what they were supposed to do as those who were given this very specific and holy calling. And now perhaps... We could point to other nations or other groups of people, even in this own timing, time frame and history, who were way worse in terms of morals and spirituality and those sorts of things. In fact, though, the priests here were called out specifically because they were called to a higher standing. They were given a higher calling, a more precious charge. I think it was Uncle Ben in the 2002 Spider-Man who came with that really great quote. With great power comes great responsibility. And I think maybe it didn't originate with him, but that's where I know it from. But I think that that's something that I think applies to this specific moment. These priests, they were given a great power that they were responsibly supposed to to minister and dispense to the people of God. They failed in that responsibility. They failed that faithful dispensation of that ministry of power that God had given to them. That was to be their focus. That was to be their, their primary sort of fundamental calling. And yet, as we've seen and noted, they've fall, let that calling fall to the wayside. They've let go that calling of God to uphold the word. You'll notice in verse 5, again, as he says, and I will come near to you. To judgment, and I will be a swift witness. Notice all the things that he is set to judge against the sorcerers, and against the adulterers, and against the false swearers, and against those that oppress the hireling, and his wages, the widow, and the fatherless, and that turn aside the stranger from his right, and fear not me, saith the Lord of hosts. As he's noting all of these different peoples that he, these different uh, uh, groups of people that he's about to judge with this swift and ready judgment, you'll notice it can be boiled down to those two things. The failure to uphold the word and a failure of properly dispensing that word. I'm reminded as he, uh, again, calls out the hireling, the widow, and the fatherless, that word from James where this is true religion, pure and undefiled. Ministering to orphans and widows in their times of need. And it comes from a sense of upholding the word that that, so to speak, true religion is manifest in the lives of God's people. So you can see how they fundamentally failed the very core of what they were supposed to be uh, sort of ministering to those that they were charged with. And I think that that's what ought to perk our ears up as we read this prophecy of judgment. It's coming to the house of the Lord. I'm also reminded of 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 17 where Peter writes in that particular letter that when God comes to jump, it comes to judge, it begins at the house of God. And you can kind of see that here. That's sort of what is overlaid on top of this entire little book is that judgment is coming and is starting right with God's people. 
I want us to notice here in this particular chapter, I divided it in sort of three different sections which sort of describe and outline this judgment that here Malachi describes. Firstly, we notice in the beginning portion of this chapter the promise of judgment. The promise of judgment. Notice, as Malachi, he begins this little chapter, this particular chapter of this prophecy with this hint that there's two messengers who are set to come. And their coming would sort of, uh, sort of signal this age of judgment that was about to come on God's people. Notice as he says, behold, I will send my messenger and he shall prepare the way before me and the Lord whom ye seek and shall suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in, behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. But who shall abide the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. And he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he shall purge and purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver. That they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. Of course, as he begins here, this messenger that is set to prepare the way, this we could call him the messenger of preparation, is of course an allusion to John the Baptist. Turn with me to Mark chapter 1, because I think it's important that we see just as we have this last word of Yahweh to his people, what is perhaps one of the first words of his people after years of silence? Well, it's Exactly as Malachi prophesied, it is John coming on the scene, declaring the word of the Lord. Notice Mark chapter 1 as he begins his gospel, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. How does this announcement of good news about Jesus, the Son of God, begin? Well, it begins with this. As it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John did baptize in the wilderness And preached the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. If you go to Luke, go to Luke chapter 1, of course, which is the nativity, we could almost say, of John the Baptist. Before the most famous nativity of the Lord Jesus, we have this sort of birth accounts of this one, the messenger of preparation. As it says in Luke chapter 1, verse 76, And thou, child shall be called the prophet of the highest. For thou shalt go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways. This messenger of preparation is here, of course, John the Baptist. And I think it's very important that we notice how both of these gospel writers spend sort of the beginning of their gospels introducing this very messenger, the messenger of preparation, we could say. And it's almost like they're making a very perhaps obvious statement, perhaps even if not even an explicit statement, that all of what Malachi said, remember those words, remember how all of those things that he prophesied about, they're coming true and they have come true in our day. And of course, for Mark's audience and Luke's audience and the audiences of the apostles, this should perk everyone's ears up. 
sits at attention. Because we're about to get to why it is so important that we notice that this messenger is here. Precisely because the messenger of preparation, he is only there to sort of make way, to clear the way, to, yes, prepare the way for the messenger of the covenant, as Malachi says. As he says in verse 1 of Malachi 3, even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in, he shall come. His mission is what? The messenger of the covenant, his mission is of pure judgment, as he says. But who may abide the day of his coming, the day in which he appears? Who can stand? Who can endure? Who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire and of like a fuller's soap. This sort of rhetorical question that the Malachi asks here at verse 2 is sort of meant to say no one. <laughs> No one can stand the day of this messenger's coming. No one can endure it. No one can truly stand on two feet when they stand before this messenger. Because he is way too powerful. Way too awesome. No one can endure that day of his coming. Because the one who is coming is none other than the Lord of hosts himself. As he notes there at the end of verse 1. He shall come, the Lord of hosts himself. And when he arrives on the scene, he arrives, as he says, with refiner's fire in one hand and fuller's soap in the other. Because he's come to purge, he's come to purify. And I think it's so fascinating to me that here Yahweh, as he, at the outset here of this little chapter, he's giving this promise that he has come to judge. And he's come to judge in a very specific way. Purging and purifying, as he says there in verse number three, referring to silver and gold, metals that are purified. To me, I think this indicates exactly how precious God's people are to him. That instead of Just casting them out. What does he come to do? He comes to purge. He comes to cleanse. He comes to refine. To me it's immediately reminiscent of what Peter talks about in 1 Peter 1. Go with me over there really quick. I'll read that verse. It's perhaps very familiar to you. But it's good to be reminded. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 6 says this. Peter the apostle. Wherein ye greatly rejoice. Though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. It's the same sort of image in mind. It's the image of a metallurgist putting a very precious metal into the furnace to refine it. And the flames are unbearable, yes. But the flames are necessary. The flames refine. The flames bring about purification. They show forth exactly what the metallurgist wants out of that hunk of metal. Not just a hunk of silver that's riddled with impurities. It's now a hunk of silver that is pure. That it can be refined and shaped and fashioned exactly into what that metallurgist wishes. And I think the image is the same here. 
It's the fires of judgment, yes. It's judgment, though, that comes out of, out of just how precious you and I are to the hearts of this perhaps true and better metallurgist, who is God himself. I think verse 3, for me, evokes verse 3 of Malachi 3. Evokes this question, how are metals purified? <laughs> Repeated trips into the fire. So we can say here that notwithstanding all of the sin that has riddled God's people and God's priests is just oozing off of them at this point. The ways in which they failed their calling, the ways in which they have sort of set themselves up for this judgment. The promise of judgment comes because God says you are so precious to me that I need to purify you. He loves them that much. I love verse 6. Where he says, for I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. (laughs) Within the sort of subtext of that verse is exactly what we're talking about. That if God was able to change, if he was able to change his mind about what he thinks about his own people, about what he thinks about grace and mercy and compassion, then God's people would have already been wiped out well before this. (laughs) But because of who I am, he says, because of who I am, you're not consumed. (laughs) You're not already burnt up. You're not already carbon sitting in the middle of the Sahara Desert. You're not already something that is not. You are still mine and you are still the apple of my eye. And yes, because you are so precious, I am coming. Yes, the messenger of my covenant is coming to purge and purify. And this judgment will be swift, but it will be changeless. And it will be changeless because it is a judgment that derives out of God's heart of love. We're going to see that in a moment. But it's important to notice here, even at the hinting of this judgment. Notice verse 4. This, he says, then that shall the after judgment, after purging, after purification. He says, then shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant Unto the Lord. And notice, as in the days of old, as in the former days, he wants it to go back to those days when it was when God's people had Yahweh in the forefront of their minds. It's a, it's a promise of judgment that aims at restoration. He's not looking just to raise things to the ground and demolish what, has, what his people has become. He's looking to build them back up. It's a ministry, we could say. It's a judgment of resurrection. And I think the fact that the Lord makes this promise shows his heart. The promise of judgment is a promise to come right where his people are, in the midst of their sin, in the midst of their iniquity. And he is coming in order specifically to refine them, to refine them exactly how he desires to make them. And I think it suggests that he's not one just to give up on his people at the first sign of trouble, at the first sign of rebellion. Indeed, I think that's the history of the Old Testament, is it not? That God's not quick on the draw to give up on people who fail. In fact, he's way more patient than we ever give him credit for. For people who constantly are running into the same brick wall of sin and strife. (laughs) 
God is still there to gently at times or to perhaps very gruffly turn us around, bring us to repentance, as he is here going to say, to get us to return to him. Because he would rather purge than destroy. He would rather purify than just cast off to the side. It's a promise of patience, even in the midst of judgment. The promise of judgment, which leads nextly, number two, to the reason for judgment. The reason for judgment. Notice verse 7. Even as from the days of, of your fathers, ye are gone away from mine ordinances and have not kept them. Return unto me and I will return unto you, saith the Lord of hosts. But ye said, wherein shall we return? Malachi, this prophet, is here giving them a reminder that even from, uh, uh, from the old days, the old days from of their fathers, and those days, even then, yes, their sins stretched back all that far. Even back then, they were inclined, inclined to go their own way, to go astray like sheep without a shepherd. They were wandering. They were straying from the ordinances of God. We can see that throughout the books of perhaps Exodus and Deuteronomy, how God's people constantly fell over themselves, going their own ways. And yet, I love this word that appears here in this verse, because even as God's people are evidencing such a wayward heart, what is his invitation? Return unto me. <laughs> Turn around, come back. I am your God. From the very beginning of God's people's rebellion, God has evidenced a heart for them to return back to him. Because that's who he is. He's a God of repentance and compassion. And his heart was for his people to see their grave need of him and to show them that he's been there for them all along. He's never changed in that disposition towards them. By this time, unfortunately, God's people had been blinded to that need. They had been blinded to that need to turn around. Again, notice their question. But he said, wherein shall we return? What are we turning away from? Where have we gone wrong? <laughs> Sort of an outrageous question. If you know the history of God's people and the ways in which perhaps you can remember even from this morning or from other chapters in Kings. All of the influences, all of the pagan and heathen rituals and rites which had come into God's people. And here they're asking, what do we need to turn from? <laughs> kind of an egregious question. But Malachi is quick to point out the ways in which they had breached this word of God. Notice verse 8. Will a man rob God? Yet ye have robbed me. But you even say, wherein have we robbed thee? In tithes and offerings. Ye are cursed with a curse, Malachi says. For ye have robbed me, even this whole nation. He accuses them very pointedly of stealing from God because they had grown very lax, even we could say indifferent and neglectful of tithes and offerings which were commanded by God himself in his word. And their failure in this area was sort of akin to highway robbery. Now a couple of things regarding these tithes and offerings that are talked about here. 
much is made about the notion that tithes equals a tenth. And indeed it does in Hebrew. It means very clearly a tenth is required of God's people's harvests or perhaps of their livelihood. And even now I'd say very much many of the churches focused on that particular meaning. Adamant that a tenth, the rule of the tenth is still in effect. You can read about these rules in Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and so on and so forth. It's all there in God's word. But I think as I've been reading this chapter, something has stood out to me. And I think it's this, that the tithes, just flatly we could say, just in and of themselves are not the extent of what God is after. It's not as if God is here saying, you haven't given me my tenth. We can read it that way, and I don't think that's what he's meaning to say. I think rather the tithes and the offerings are sort of the proof, the, the evidence of what God is after. You see, the rule of the tenth, I think, breaks down in terms of its long-standing sort of establishment, because I don't think God is very much interested in just mechanical or even, I could say, mathematical giving. I think he's after our hearts. I think he's after way more after our hearts than anything else. Such is why when the widow came into the temple and she gave two mites, he said, she's given way more than all. It wasn't about math because she gave way less than other people there. It was about her heart. It wasn't about mechanics. It wasn't about algebra or anything like that. It was about her soul. It was about her heart and what she gave. And even here, I think Yahweh is leading his people to see it's not just about the math that I'm after. I'm after your heart. I'm after your devotion. I'm after your surrender. You can't even give this. You can't even give what my word requires. The priests and the people... They failed to tithe, but it wasn't a matter of just math. It was a matter of their hearts turning away from the Lord, where they didn't even, it didn't even affect them. It didn't even bother them. Wherein have we robbed thee? <laughs> they couldn't even see that they had stolen from God. <laughs> they had demonstrated in this that they didn't even really trust him either. In fact... As we're going to see in just a second, they were even saying that Yahweh, this Jehovah, who has shown himself to be so good and decent and benevolent and patient, he's not really trustworthy. We can't even, he doesn't have our best interests in mind. Why are we trusting him with our tenth? Why are we trusting him with all of these offerings that we are required to make? You see, this heart is downstream from this idea that God is formulaic. I put my tenth in, and blessings are spewed out. See, the people had come to view God. They had viewed God that way. And notice what that view of God does. Look at verse 13. Your words have been stout. Your words have been harsh against me, saith the Lord. Yet ye say, what have we spoken so much against thee? Again, their blindness. Ye have said... Notice, God's people are saying this. It is vain to serve God. What profit is it that we have kept his ordinances and that we have walked mournfully before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the proud happy. Yea, they that work wickedness are set up. Yea, they that tempt God are even delivered. What are we doing? 
Why are we serving God at all? It's vain. It's useless. We've gotten no profit, no gain, no benefit, no reward from all of our devotion, all of our giving, all of our sacrifices. Why bother? That's essentially their testimony here to the Lord himself. Why bother? Look at all the things we've done. (laughs) We gave. We put our stuff in the plate. Why is there no blessing being poured out? (laughs) It's this sort of formulaic view of who God is. That if he's a plug and play machine. (laughs) God's a vending machine. I put in my offering and blessings spew out. (laughs) Not in the form of Snickers, but something else. (laughs) That's how they sort of viewed this in a way. If you can think about that. God is a divine vending machine. And I put in my tithe and he gives me something back. And when that doesn't happen, when the Snickers get stuck in the machine, it's very annoying. (laughs) When there's no blessing that's coming out, what is God's people are now saying? They're saying, why bother at all? We're going to go somewhere else. (laughs) I'm not going to carry that metaphor further. We're going to go to another vending machine. (laughs) We're going to go to another God. We're going to go to somewhere else where we can find these blessings or at least hope to find them. And you can see God is... He takes offense at this, as we're going to see in a moment. But I think the point of the prophet here, the reason for judgment, is that God's people had been become possessed with this posture of heart that fails to see God's true nature, fails to see God's true character. They had no reverence for who he truly was. He's the Lord of hosts who loves endlessly And they were to give not because they were fulfilling a command, but because their hearts were so generated with this love that springs out of the endless love of God, poured and showered upon them. It was a response to who their God was. Their tithing and their offering and their giving was a response to the infinite gift of God himself. That's the rule, I would say, that applies to us, the church, today. It's a response to the infinite gift of God. I like what G. Campbell Morgan, that famous orator, he says about this particular passage. Tithes, he says, quote, never reach the storehouse except in response to love. Mechanical, and I would say mathematical religion, cannot last. It always becomes weary and ceases. And I think that's exactly the point the prophet is trying to emphasize. They think God is a divine vending machine that's going to break down eventually. And that's why this judgment is necessary and imminent because God, he loves us so much. He wants to preserve us from this very wearying mechanics of mathematical religion. So we have the promise of judgment, the reason for judgment. But lastly, number three, the hope in judgment. The hope in judgment. As we've hinted at already, this judgment is but a token of God's love for his people. He loves them so much that he loves them enough to not leave them this way, to leave them where they are. And I think that's a true way to read this particular book. It's not some warning shot by some vindictive overlord. Rather, these are the words of a father who is bent on restoring his people, on healing them, on bringing them back and renewing them as he's already hinted at. 
as in the days of old. The heart of this judgment is getting things right. And as here, the prophet, as the prophet Malachi is here hinting at, at this particular time, when these messengers come, you will know that God himself is now taking this endeavor to make things right into his own hands. Because he takes it personally, what you have just suggested. Indeed, I, I, I like verse number 10. Because it's almost a challenge to God's people. You know, they evidence this untrustworthiness of who their God was with their tithes and offerings. So rather than give it, they're going to hoard it. Because after all, why bother? And here I think his message, if you could sum up verse 12, is essentially, go ahead, try me. Look at verse 10. He says, bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in mine house, and prove me now, prove me, test me, try me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open to you the windows of heaven and pour out you pour you out a blessing, that there shall not be room enough to receive it. And I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes, and he shall not destroy the fruits of your ground. Neither shall your vine cast her fruit before the time in the field, saith the Lord of hosts. And all nations shall call you blessed, for ye shall be a delightsome land, saith the Lord of hosts. You think I can't provide for you? You think I don't have your best interests in mind? You think I can't bless you? Go ahead and try me. Just just see if it works. See if I'm a God of my word or not. See that these very people who had become so frustrated that they had began to refuse to give to God at all. Here, God himself is giving them this word, reassuring them. I am a God who delights in giving. I delight in blessing and giving these blessings on my very people. And their blessings, as he says, that you won't have enough room for them without measure. Your silos are going to be brimming, busting at the seams. There's no room to house all of God's blessings. And here the message is not a formula for blessings. It's the announcement of what's been there all along. This is the heart they've turned away from. The windows of heaven. The floodgates, we could say. Trust in me, and I will open up the floodgates of blessing upon you. Because that's what's at the heart of God. And yet, like God's people, we entrust our lives to something else. To something that we can perhaps see quicker results from. Quicker gratification. And here, the heart of Malachi is the heart of God. Trust in Yahweh's benevolence. Trust in his heart for you. Because at the heart of God, it's the people of God. And he delights and he longs for them to be possessed with such a heart, a heart for him and his word, that they cannot but help but give themselves to him. Here's the truest expression of worship, of exaltation, of this one who is worthy of all blessings, of everything divine. It's this God himself who delights to give these things to us. And you see, the hope in judgment is just that. 
that those who return, those who fear the Lord as they ought, they will have their names written in the book of life, or as here Malachi calls it, the book of remembrance. Notice verse 16. Then they that feared the Lord spake often one to another, and the Lord hearkened, he heard them, and heard it, and a book book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord and that thought upon his name. And they shall be mine, saith the Lord of hosts. In that day when I make up my jewels and I will spare them as a man spareth his own son that serveth him, then shall ye return and discern between the righteous and the wicked, between him that serveth God and him that serveth him not. Those who entrust their lives to this God who cannot change, This Lord of hosts, they are the ones who are brought near, brought close to him. Precisely because, as he says, they are my jewels. They are my peculiar treasure, my truest prized possession. And in that embrace, they are safe and secure. They are safe in this heart of compassion. As he says, I will spare them. I will have compassion on them. You see, he is a judge who is ready to have compassion on those who turn to him. This is the altogether different view of who our father is. That when we're down and out, we're down in the ruts. We've uh, hurt ourselves again. We've tripped ourselves again. We've failed again. Who is the father that comes to our side? None other than this Lord of hosts. This Lord who comes and says, you are mine. You are my treasure. You are my possession. And in me and with me, you are safe. Judgment is coming, but praise be to God. We have no reason to fear this judge because he is our father. He is our savior. He is our Lord. Let us pray.